Well, that is the uh, question that uh, we're looking at these uh, Sundays. Last uh, Lord's Day, we began a new series entitled Christian or Disciple, and we'll be looking at that question uh, once again today. I want you to um, be anticipating uh, what God wants to do among us today. Um, Anytime we have a, a baptism Sunday, of course, there's a real presence of the Spirit here in our service, but... Um, it's a combination of attention to the word and worship and the baptism that uh, puts us in a position of receptivity to the, to the Lord himself. So um, would you do me a favor and just extend your arms for a moment as a posture of receptivity as we prepare to uh, receive the word of the Lord. Father, we are your children. Uh, you've called us disciples and because we are your followers, we desire with our whole heart to hear your word today. Father, whatever you say to us in your word, may we already have in our hearts and in our minds and on our lips the word yes. Yes, Lord Jesus, I will follow you. Yes, Lord Jesus, I will do whatever you ask me to do. Yes, Lord Jesus, I will give my life to you. And now, Father, as we open your word, may you open our hearts and our minds to receive it. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And all of God's people together said, amen. Amen. Thank you. Very, very. Well, today we are once again looking at the question, uh, Christian or disciple. Now, what we've discovered so far is that the word Christian is used only three times in the New Testament. Jesus himself never used it once. And the three times that it was used was in a derogatory way. In other words, you Christians, you know, they used it in a very uh, derogatory way. Now, the name that Jesus' followers or, uh, gave to themselves was something completely different. It was a uh, disciple. They called themselves disciples. Now, the reason this is such a big deal, such a difference, and the reason we're spending these weeks on this subject is because a Christian, the word Christian can be defined any way you want. The reason it can be defined any way you want is because the Bible does not define it. Jesus does not define it. He never used the word. So Christian is defined in any number of ways. Um, a lot of people believe that if you believe in God, that makes you a Christian. Or if you believe in Jesus, that makes you a Christian. Or if you go to church, that makes you a Christian. Or if you live in the Western Hemisphere, that makes you a Christian. Or if you were born in America, that makes you a Christian. Or if you were baptized, or any number of things, people can define Christianity uh, in many, many different ways. So that's why you find on any side of a political issue, on any side of every legal issue, every battle that has been fought in the world, every educational issue, wherever we find issues, conflicts, world wars, international conflicts, you can find Christians on either side. And so you'd think, well, if everybody's a Christian, why can't we just get along and agree on such fundamental subjects as the ones that we're talking about these days? Now, the reason is, as I've mentioned, because Christianity is not defined. But disciple, that word is a very 
scary in some ways, very controversial, very narrow definition. It's defined as someone who is a follower, someone who is an apprentice, someone who chooses to follow a master. We are disciples. Now, over the years, being a Christian has kind of morphed into um, a system of beliefs. Well, what do you believe, people would ask you. And then you have the basic things. Well, I believe in the uh, inspiration of the scriptures. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the church. I believe in the soon return of Jesus Christ. We have all of those, and those are all good, and they're all very valid. But it's, Christianity has kind of morphed into an idea of, of what you believe. Do you believe the right things? But that was never the definition in Scripture. In fact, someone who was not a Christ follower had a very good insight about this, a guy that you might have remembered that passed away a few years ago, Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs said this about Christianity. The juice goes out of Christianity when the emphasis is on faith rather than living like Jesus lived or seeing the world like Jesus saw it. I happen to believe what Steve Jobs said. Now, what we believe really does matter. I, I believe in good doctrine. I believe in theology. I believe in the Bible as God's word. All of these things are very close to my heart, very real. But you know what? Here's a problem. Uh, there's a lot of non-believers that believe those things. Satan believes a lot of things about God and about the Bible. So just believing the right things isn't the answer. Instead, Jesus said, I want you to be very clear so there's no ambiguity around this subject. I want you to know what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple. And he summarized it in one passage. And, and some people might say, well, that passage is kind of the soft side of Jesus. Well, there's only one side of Jesus, and that was the real side. But this passage is located in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. You saw it on the video. Let me read it to you again. Here's what Jesus said. A new command I give you. Let's stop right there. A new command, when you look at the original language, what this means is a command or a, um, a subject line that is far superior over any other command that's ever been given. So something that is above all of the other commandments, all of the other midrash, all of the other sub-commandments, all of the other things that people have said, you've got to do this, you've got to do this, you've got to do this in order to be a Christian. All of those things. Jesus said, I want, you to give you, I want to give you one clear example of what I mean. This new commandment supersedes every other commandment, and this is what he said. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another all men will know that you are my what? Disciples, if you love one another. Not Christians, but disciples. So how do you know if you're in? How do other knows if you're in? It's not by what you do on Sundays, as much as we love having you here on Sundays. It's not by the system of things that you believe, but it's how you treat each other, how you love each other, and how you love the world outside of you. So today and then in the next couple of weeks, I want to examine that and give you some very practical application from the scriptures. Uh, so here's what we're going to do. Um, next week and maybe the week after, we're going to talk about how we are to treat and love each other in, within the body of Christ. Now you say, well, that should be easy. Well, it should be. But if you were to ask somebody from the world what they think about how we treat each other in the body of Christ, they'd say, you don't act like you love each other very much. 
You don't really act very nice to each other. So we've got to talk about that. But today what I want to talk about, which I think is a very important subject, is how do we perceive and see people outside of the body of Christ, outside of uh, being a disciple, those who have chosen not to be a follower of Christ. So today we're going to look at something that I think the church has missed out on in a profound way. Now, I will say this. Today, some of you will be offended by what I have to say. And if you're not, come back next week, and I guarantee you, you'll be offended next week. Okay, so we're all on the same page. Now, now what followers of Jesus, when they were called disciples, this is what they were called to do and to be. That group of people, Christ followers, disciples, in the early days of Christianity or Christendom, in the early days, they had zero leverage. They had no financial leverage because they had no money. They had no political leverage. They had no place in politics. They had no educational leverage. Very few of them even had an education. They had none of this that would, we look today and say, well, the church has a lot of leverage. It has money or it has power, it has prestige. They had none of that in the early days. Now, history shows us that after the first 300 years, uh, the church began to get power. And they began to get leverage. And as soon as the church began to get leverage and power in the world, everything fell apart. Let me tell you what I mean. Jesus is ready to leave the world. Leave the building, right? He's got his disciples gathered. They're there. They're saying, Jesus, we wish you'd stay with us. He said, listen, I'm going I'm to stay here in the form of my Holy Spirit who will dwell in your life, the Spirit of Christ within you. Christ in me, Colossians 1.27, Christ in me, the hope of glory. So, Christ is going to be in you. I'm going to be here. I'm going to be present with you. But right now I'm going up to my Father in heaven. So he said, let me tell you one more thing before I go. And this is what I want you to remember. And this is your charge. This is what you're supposed to do. For the rest of your lives and all of the lives after you that call themselves Christ followers, for all of the disciples, this is your job. This is what you have to do for the, rest of the, for the rest of the world. Okay, here's what he said. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Jesus said these words. Therefore, go and make what? Disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, make disciples, that phrase means literally to call someone to be a follower. To call someone to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So here's what Jesus was saying. I want you to go out into the world Yes, that scary place, the world, where there's all of these pagans and all of these religions and all of these people that don't believe anything about this. I want you to go out in the world and I want you to be a follower of Jesus in such a way. I want you to be a learner of Jesus in such a way, an apprentice of Jesus in such a way. I want you to be a teacher, a speaker, a lover of Jesus in such a way that the world would cause people to become my followers. I want you to behave so much like me and speak so much like I speak and act like I speak that the world's going to look at you and say, I want to be a follower of Jesus because of those people. That was their job. Now, for the first 300 years of the church, that worked beautifully. The first 300 years, remember, they had no leverage of any sort. The only thing they had, they were supposed to take the good news of God's reconciling love. That's the gospel. 
The good news of God's reconciling love that Jesus died for your sins, he rose from the dead, he sits at the right hand of the Father and he'll return again one day. Uh, That gospel, that good news uh, is given to you. It's in your heart, but it's given to you. Now I want you to go and take that to the world. And well, how are we supposed to take it to the world, Lord? We don't have any money. I understand that. We don't have any education. I've got that. We don't have any power whatsoever. We have no leverage to give. He said, okay, there's only one delivery system to deliver that message, and it's love. No other delivery system. No bullhorn guy. No writing and raving, turn or burn. (laughs) None of that. There's only one delivery system to take the gospel into the world, and that is love. Now, that worked for 300 years. So what happened? Well, the church got organized. Now, here's what happened. Uh, Constantine, 313 AD. Constantine decided he was going to be the emperor, and he decided that I want to make all of Rome, actually all of my province, my whole area, I want to make it Christian. Because the church is starting to get organized, they're starting to gain power, and I kind of like the power they have. And so I want all of uh, Christendom, I want all of uh, people in my uh, vast area of influence, all of Rome and all of Asia Minor, I want them to all be Christians. So therefore he made a decree, from now on, if you're a Roman citizen, you're a Christian. Now how many Christians do you think that developed? Zero. (laughs) Here's Here's what Constantine did. Constantine said, okay, he's got a huge army, and the army's prepared to go out and kill all the non-Christians because the best way you can have pure Christianity is by getting rid of all the bad people, right? So let's go chop their heads off. Well, actually, that's not ever what Jesus wanted, but that's what the Christians had kind of morphed into. So he said, okay, we're going to go out and we're going to kill the moguls and we're going to kill the pagans and we're going to kill all the people that don't believe like we do. We're going to just chop their heads off and throw our swords through them and all while we're doing that, we'll be praising God, right? That's what we're going to do. So uh, his army, uh, he, said he wanted his army to be baptized. Okay, so again, remember in those days, baptism had nothing to actually being a Christ follower or a disciple, but he wanted all of his army to be baptized because now it's become a thing. It's a thing to be a Christian. It's not a relationship with Jesus, it's a thing. So he had all of his soldiers march into a lake and he instructed them, I want you to go into the lake until it's over your head. And then, but one thing I want you to do is keep your sword out of the water. Why would they keep their sword out of the water? He says, I don't want your swords baptized. I want your swords to still be pagan. I want your swords to be able to chop off the heads of those evil people that don't uh, know about God. I want you to kill those moguls and I want you to kill those pagans and just destroy them. So keep your, you're baptized, you're good, somehow you're going to heaven some way, but your arm is to stay. That's what Christianity became. And then later, when he became emperor, the church started taking, and then the emperor of Rome and the, ultimately in about 50 years after this, the Pope of Rome, Pope, Papa, head of the church, the Pope of Rome became one and the same thing. Church and politics, now the church has influence. Now the church has power. Now the church has money. Now the church has the ability to say to all of you people out there in the world that are bad, you're all bad and we're going to make you behave and we're going to cut your heads off if you don't behave and we're going to do all And they did all of this in the name of what? Christianity. And nothing had to do with discipleship. Nothing had to do with following Jesus. First 300 years, 
the gospel is delivered with love. The last 1,700 years, the gospel has been delivered with a sword. And not, if not a sword, with words, harsh words from Christians sitting in churches just like ours. Well, those bad people out there, those people out there, you know, they don't live the way we live. They don't have the same morals we have, and they're bad, and we've got to keep our kids away from them. And we, all of th- everything has changed. We no longer share the gospel with love. We share it with coercion. And God says that has to stop. Paul introduced a concept. Now, let me, let me say what that early church, the church of the fourth century would have said. And the church says many times today, here's what the church would say. The Great Commission, right? This is a not so great commission. Therefore, go and impose my teachings and values on all nations, threatening them with judgments and destructions if they don't believe everything I've commanded you. Do you think Jesus would have ever written that? Do you think Jesus would have approved of that? But that's what the church became. And for so many people, that's what the church has been for the last 1,700 years. Where did we go wrong? I'll tell you where we went wrong. We forgot that commandment that Jesus said, this is the greatest commandment. This supersedes every other doctrine, every other teaching, to love one another as I have loved you and to love your enemy in the same way. We've got to get back to what Jesus desired for us to have. So Paul talked about this idea of uh, power over versus power under. Now let me just briefly tell you what that is. Power over is when you have influence in such a way that you're over another human being or over another country or over another people or another race. You've got power over. We had power over uh, Africans when we brought them over here as slaves. We had power over them. We had power over when Teddy Roosevelt wanted, did a, a world tour. He brought some Filipinos back and he called them little monkeys. And he said, a, a, a white Anglican Nordic people need to have power over these people of different colors. That was considered one of the greatest presents we ever have. That's what T- Teddy Roosevelt believed. And so all we have this history of always having power over, power over other countries, power over men having power over women, uh, fathers having, having the wrong kind of power over their children, all of these things is power over. And Jesus never once described power over. Everything he did was what? Power under. What is power under? It's washing someone's feet. Power under is serving them. Power under is loving them even when they're not lovely, even when they're not lovable, loving them until they ask you why. That is power under. That's what God has called us to do. So now this morning I want to dive a little bit deeper into this. And I would do it by using um, the subject of judging. Judging. Now, again, Jesus' way of judging, by the way, Jesus talked about judging he said judging's okay at times, and other times he said judging's not okay. Paul said judging's okay, and judging's not okay. It's kind of confusing. You say, okay, so what is it? Because how many times have you heard, especially your non-Christian friends, say what? Don't judge me. <laughs> don't judge me. What they're saying is, I already feel badly enough about myself. I don't need you to do it too, right? So don't judge me, but that's all. Well, that's such a typical thing in our world today, especially along, among the millennials. Don't judge me. No, they're just saying, I can believe anything I want, and you can. Don't judge me. So we're going to talk about judging today because the gospel loses its juice, its power, 
when we uh, impose our will on people instead of loving them. So let's dive deeper, deeper by looking at one passage in Scripture, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you have your Bibles, turn there. And uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 um, is a very interesting passage. We'll read through the first, uh, first half of the, book, of the chapter. Uh, and what's interesting about this passage is that Paul was talking to the Corinthians. By the way, the Corinthians were a ecclesia, or a ecclesia is the word for church. And a church is never a building in the Scripture. A church is always a movement. Okay. So we, we are not, this isn't the church, this is a church. This is a movement of God in the world. And, we're, and our goal, our, our task is always the same. Jesus gave it to us in the Great Commission. Uh, take the gospel, give the gospel to others with the delivery system of love. That's, that's our job, always. And so everything's changed when we make the church you know, a building instead of the church being a movement. So there's this ecclesia in, in Corinth. Paul had established the church. He had uh, discipled them. He had given them good instruction, good direction, and then left a couple of pastors there, and he went on to plant other churches. Well, it got back to Paul that everything was starting to fall apart in, um, in Corinth. In fact, way before Las Vegas, they had the phrase, you know, when in Corinth, uh, uh, you know, that kind of a deal. Uh, you know, what, what's the phrase? Yeah, what you do in Corinth, uh, you know, stays in Corinth. And uh, so they kind of had that, uh, that philosophy. Because there was all kinds of immorality that was in the, in the country, or excuse me, in the city of Corinth. It was a coastal city. A lot of sailors, you know, like that. A coastal city. And, uh, and there was a lot of immorality there. There was pagan worship. There was, uh, you know, uh, Diana. They worshipped a, a goddess of prostitution and all kinds of weird stuff going on there. And so Paul was saying, hey, listen, you guys have not been diligent in that some of these uh, people with very questionable morals have been getting into the church and getting established in the church, and you need to be careful of that. So here's what he writes. Now, by the way, uh, we're going to be reading 1 Corinthians 5, and uh, there's a really juicy po portion of Scripture here. Um, you know, what, what do I tell you every Sunday, Carrie? Yeah, read your Bibles. Yeah, because sometimes it's juicy, okay, and that's pretty cool. And this is one of those juicy passages. So this is what it says, the first couple of verses of chapter 5. Um, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife and you are proud. So <laughs> there's this man living in sin with his stepmother. And we in the church would say gross and uh, people outside the church would say Gross. I mean, this is gross everywhere, right? You know, a man is living in sin with his stepmother. And it's just really ugly. And Paul says, hey, these things don't even happen sometimes out there among the pagans. And it's certainly not supposed to happen in the church. So what, what Paul was starting to say here is, listen, in the church, as Christ followers, as disciples, there's a standard of morality. Now, the standard of morality is not a thing unto itself. Like, you, you just, you've got to figure out how to be moral. A standard of morality is God's telling you something like this. Listen, if you live your life for me, you'll be on a path that will cause your life to be so fulfilling and so substantial. And you'll avoid some of the pitfalls that we see throughout the world. And many of those pitfalls have to do with sex. Let's just be really clear and be really honest. And Paul is saying, listen, Jesus said, if you do things my way, if you keep uh, this sex thing that I've created as a beautiful gift, 
in a marriage relationship, a man and a woman for life, this kind of beautiful thing, if you keep it in this boundary, it's going to be beautiful and wonderful. But if you take it outside the boundary, there's all kinds of problems out here. Diseases and broken hearts and broken feelings and sadness. And there's all kinds of... So if you keep it in here, the good things are going to happen. But if you do this, you're going to be all goofed up. So what Jesus was saying, listen, I'm not trying to keep you from having fun. If sin wasn't fun, we wouldn't do it. But sin's fun. But then there's always what to sin that's a gotcha. (laughs) Always a gotcha, always a consequence. So Jesus is saying, listen, I want you to live fully. I want you to live, enjoy my gifts of sex. But you do it in the confines that I've given to you. That's where you will find help and health and wholeness for yourself, for your family. It's going to be beautiful. But if you go over here, you're going to find all kinds of problems, broken hearts, broken relationships, uh, diseases, all kinds of stuff. But if you do it my way, so that's what he was saying. The standard of morality is to keep you healthy and happy and to keep you from hurting yourself and hurting other people. It's not because there's some magic morality code in the, in the universe. It's to keep you from messing up your life. So that's why God has given us this. So there's the standard of morality in the church as to help us live lives that are responsible so that people will look in at the church and say, I want that. Because I see the way Randy treats Annette in their marriage. And I see the way that Mike and Paula live their lives. And I see you people. And, I, and, and, and I, I'm drawn to that because there's this love there and there's this beauty. And I want part of that. So that, that's the goal of, of this standard of morality. So this wasn't happening in the church. So this guy had leaked in. and was causing this problem in the church. And here's what... Paul said in the next couple of verses. But before, before I say that, you got to remember that these uh, early ecclesias, these little house churches, were 20, 30, 40, 50 people at the most. So everybody kind of knew everybody's business, kind of living in a small town, you know. Everybody knew everybody. Now, you can come to Hope Covenant Church. Now, we're a mid-sized church. We're a church of 500. So you can come here and keep your secret sins and nobody ever know it, okay? So you say, whoopee, you know, I can... I, I can Keep my secret. No, that's not a good thing, really. You know, it's not a good thing. But so this, all this stuff was going on in this ecclesia. And, um, uh, and then here's what Paul says next. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? In other words, shouldn't your heart have been heavy and actually remove this man from the church? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit and I have pa- already passed judgment on the one who did this just as if I were present. So there's a standard of morality. And so here's what Paul was saying. When you start acting and behaving without a standard of morality that God has given you to protect you, when you start behaving like everybody else in the world, he said, you're losing the integrity and the strength of this body of Christ. Christ followers who are living God's way and showing the world that we live differently, right? I mean, look at the way we live our lives. So when you're not doing that, that bad apple needs to be cut out of the herd. Okay, now, you say, okay, so what you're saying is that we should throw out people that sin. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. This is what Paul's saying here. And this is very clear. Jesus made this clear and Paul made this clear at the same time. When someone is sinning blatantly and openly in the church, say, look at, see, I'm doing what I'm doing and I don't care what God says, okay? That person needs to be removed from the church, not forever, just for a time until they repent and feel the full weight of their sin, to feel the full weight of the, they're removed temporarily, feel the full weight of their sin, repent, hopefully, everybody will still be loving on them and saying, come on, we want you to come back, we want you to get your life right with God. And when they do, they come back and they're fully enfolded in the church of God. So the purpose of all of that is to, really to save them. And you see that in the next 
part of this. Verses 4 and 5. When you're assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I'm with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed. The idea is to destroy that sinful nature and what? And so that his spirit will be saved on the day of the Lord. So there's no sense of throwing out bad apples and leaving them out in the trash. There's never that. In the body of Christ, when someone is blatantly, openly sinning, you set them outside so they feel the full weight of the sin so they can be repentant and be saved and return back to the body of Christ. That's what he's talking about here. Now you say, now, say, now wait a second. Paul, you're basically saying that we're supposed to judge this guy, Right? And, you, and, and that's exactly what we're hearing, right? You hear that? We're supposed to judge this guy. And yet, Paul, other times, you and Jesus both say, don't judge. Judge not lest ye be judged, right? Watch out for the log in your own eye. We read all of those verses. So which is it? Are we supposed to judge? Are we not supposed to judge? What's going on? And then we're kind of arguing with Paul, and then we realize, oh, wait a minute, he wrote the Bible, so I guess he knows what he's talking about, and, and we have to pay attention to him. So, so what's going on? We're kind of confused. Now, this is important, and, and, and please hear this statement. The Bible does not teach us not to judge, but who to judge. The Bible does not teach us not to judge, but who to judge. This is where we get confused. What Paul is saying here is that, yes, there are times when we have to judge each other. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to hold each other accountable because we love each other. And I don't want you going off this way and ruining your life and ruining your family. I'm going to go over there. I'm going to put my arm around you. And I'm going to say, this is not acceptable. I want you to come back to Jesus. I want you to come back to your faith. And what, the way you're living your life is not acceptable. And that's, and that's going to end in death. And I don't want that for you. And so we hold each other accountable. Anybody that says that Christians are supposed to sit back and say, well, it doesn't matter what you do. It does matter what you do. The world is watching. It does make a difference how you live your life. It does matter how you do your marriage. It does matter how you do integrity in, your, in the world and with us at school and at your job. It does matter. All of those things matter because we represent Jesus. And we want the world to look at us and say, I want part of that. And when they look at us fighting and arguing and, and being mean to each other, why would they want to be part of the church? See, I can get that stuff in the pagan world. I don't need that stuff. And so there's this, this, this tension. And so what he's saying is not, it's not a matter of not judging each other. We're supposed to judge each other. We're supposed to hold each other accountable because we love each other. It's like a parent judging. How many of you parents judge your children? Every day. If you didn't raise your hand, you're not being truthful. You judge your children every single day. And you do so because you know better right? You know what's going to hurt them. You know what's not going to hurt them. And so you make judgments on them every day. Don't do that. You know, I, I know one parent that tried to raise a child without ever saying no. Good luck, you know. You know it's not going to happen. It's called the original sin in a child. Anyway, so there's, you know, we are called, just like a good parent is called to judge and hold accountable his children, our Heavenly Father is a good Father, and He wants us to hold each other accountable too. When somebody goes off the track, if you just let them go, you're sinning against them. You go out, you put your arm around them and say, this is not right. This is not right. Where do you think you're going? There have been times when I've sat in the driveway of a man that I knew was committing adultery, and I sat there until he saw my car. Whatever we need to do, we do it. Because we hold each other accountable. But here's what Paul is saying. Who you're not supposed to judge are the people on the outside. Judge each other, hold each other accountable, absolutely. As Christ followers, as disciples, we are to judge and hold each other accountable. But the world, you're not supposed to judge them. 
And for the last 1,700 years, the church of Jesus Christ has wasted almost all of their energy trying to judge the world. Oh, you guys are bad out there. Turn or burn, uh, bullhorn guy, and, uh, you know, right-wing activists and uh, burning abortion clinics, and they're all out there. And here's, here's what Paul is saying. You have everything you can to keep you busy taking care of your own sin and then helping those around you that you love with theirs. Don't worry about the sin. Here, here's what Paul says. Paul says God will take care of them, right? Look at the next passage. Uh, verses 9 to 13. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of the world who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you should have to leave this world. If you were to just hang around people that didn't do any of these things, there wouldn't be any people in the world <laughs> because everybody does these things at some level, right? And he's saying, so I'm not talking about that. Instead, um, Verse 11, but now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself what? A brother, a disciple, a follower of Christ, but is sexually immoral or greedy. You've got to take that person's, hey, this is not acceptable. An idolater, slanderer, drunkard, swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. Now listen to this, verse 12. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? It's not our job. It's God's job, not our job. Are you not to judge those inside? Absolutely would be the answer. God will judge those outside. God will judge those outside. Here's what's happened. The church has been so focused on telling the world that they're going to hell on a handcart. They've been so focused on telling the world that they live poorly that they forgot to really monitor themselves and they forgot to give that gift of the gospel. They weren't, they're saying, here, here's the gift of the gospel. Uh, if you don't accept it, you're going to go to hell. Is that delivering that message with love? The Bible says the goodness of God draws men to repentance. We deliver that message with love. Genuine love for people that are outside of Christ. Genuine love for those as individuals. Yes, love for the kid that has pants down below his butt. Yes, kids that have, you know, metal in their head and all that. Every one of those kids, because every one of them Jesus loves and every one of them, they need to know it and they need to know it from you. They need to know it from you. They don't need to know, oh, you're just one of those kids. What do you mean one of those kids? This is a child that was born into this world that God loves and sent his son Jesus to die for. Every single one of them. Paul says, I expect you to monitor each other and to hold each other accountable. Absolutely. But the world, let God judge them. What you're supposed to do with them is carry the good news of Jesus Christ and you give it to them in the form of love. Only one delivery system, and that is love. Now, the first 300 years, the disciples did not expect Jesus' followers to behave like they were. In the first 300 years, they didn't go around putting on moral constraints and saying, well, you ought to do this and you ought to do They didn't do any of that because they had no leverage. How could they do it? What they did go around doing is say, listen, can I tell you about Jesus who changed my life? Can I tell you about Jesus who saved me? from a life that was miserable? Can I tell you about this, this Savior that lives in my life? Can I tell you about Him? Because that's what I want for you. See how they love one another. See how they love one another. So I had, um, a few years ago, an experience with um, two couples. Uh, one couple was a couple in our church, and 
they've moved away, so don't start thinking, now who is that, okay? Uh, and another couple was a couple from outside the church that somebody recommended. They said, uh, you know, this guy over at Hope Covenant Church will marry you, but he'll make you go through six weeks of premarital counseling. And if you're willing to do that, he's willing to marry you, which is exactly the truth. So I had these two couples. One was from the church, another from outside the church. Now the reason, and you say, well, why would you marry a couple that aren't Christians? Very simply, I, I want six hours with them, loving them and teaching them about Jesus. You give me six hours with somebody uh, that, where I can love them and respect them and show them the love of Jesus, I'll take those odds anytime. I'll marry them anytime. Now, I won't marry a believer and a non-believer. The Bible says don't do that. But I'll marry two non-believers, and I'll certainly marry uh, two believers. So I had these two couples. The believers came to my office first, and we talked. And immediately, uh, they confessed to me that they felt, felt kind of guilty about this, but they were living together. And so we talked about that. And I was very direct. I said, listen, this is what God's standard is in Scripture. He does this out of love. He doesn't do this because he wants to give you rules and make you unhappy. He does this out of love and respect for you and for, the, for this thing we call the covenant of marriage. And so it's a beautiful thing. And if you want God's best, you need to do it God's way. And here's what I'm suggesting to you, that you can experience secondhand virginity. You can ask God to forgive you for your past, forgive you what you've done, and he'll give you that secondhand virgin, and you can go into your marriage like, like virgins. It's a, it's a beautiful thing because God's redemptive power is that great. And, and so I always offer this to couples who are Christians who are living together. Uh, and, uh, and, and this couple took it and they ran with it. It was beautiful. Okay, now they didn't have to. I still would have married them, but I, I gave them the truth. And I set a boundary and I gave them the truth and I did that. The other couple, they're living together. And you know what my response is? Why not? <laughs> Just about everybody else is, you know. Okay. They said, well, does that bother you that we live together? I said, no, not at all. And they said, well, we're kind of surprised because other uh, people that we know are Christians are always telling us we're wrong. I said, well, have either one of you signed off on the Bible as your, as your, uh, as your no, no, we don't believe it. Either one of you signed off on Jesus where you're going to live like he wants you to live? Nope. Okay, so why would I expect you to live like that if you don't sign off on it? So, okay, it makes sense. So over the next six weeks, that wasn't an issue. Some of the other things they were involved in that I as a Christian would not, excuse me, as a disciple would not want to do. Uh, they would, but I just, here's what I did. I loved them. I still gave them my best. This is how you can have a great marriage. I loved them. I respected them. On the last session, the man says to me, he said, Dwayne, we want to hear more about Jesus. We want to hear more about Jesus. They both gave their hearts to Christ. They're both in our church today. They gave their hearts to Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Now, if I'd have gone in there and said, oh, you guys are living together? You guys, you mean you're having sex like the world? Uh, yeah, because we are of the world. Uh, as, and I just condemn them and judge them and say, oh, you shouldn't do this. And you, you know, how long would they have lasted in the counseling? They wouldn't have lasted the first hour. They would be so out of there. Why are you judging us? Why are you condemning us? You have no right to do that. And I would not have a right to do that. But when I loved them, and when I gave them the gospel, and I showed them Jesus, that's what won them to Christ. For 1,700 years, we have tried to pound the gospel into people's lives. We have tried to literally, through wars, just crush people until they say, yeah, okay, I'll be a follower of Jesus. God says, that's not your job. You judge the, I'll judge the outside. You take care of the family of God. So imagine, imagine a scenario like this. So you have um, 
a group of Christ followers at Hope Covenant Church. We're not a large church. We're not a small church. We're a church of 500. We have a group of Christ followers, disciples at Hope Covenant Church. And we're doing our very best to live like disciples. And we're going to fail and we're going to make mistakes. And there are going to be times when somebody gets off the rails and we go over and we put our arms around them and say, this is not, this is not right. And we're going to do all of those things. But we're going to do it in such a way. And we're going to take the good news of Jesus Christ that we have as our possession in us. And we're going to take that and we're going to give that to the world. And we're going to do it with love. We're not going to do it with condemnation or finger pointing or uh, bullhorn guy. We're going to do it with love. And if we were to do that, our congregation, one congregation in Chandler, one congregation in Phoenix, one congregation in the United States, one congregation in the world, if we were to do that, and we would do that faithfully, we would, listen, change the world. Because the world's not used to that. The world's used to being called hypocrites and calling us hypocrites. The world's used to being judged and condemned. The world very seldom has the good news of Jesus Christ placed in their hands and said, this is what God has for you. Imagine what a world would be like if they looked into our church, if they peered into your home and they said, look how he loves his wife. Look how they treat their children. Look how they are at work or at school or playing racquetball or basketball. Look at the way that they treat each other the way that they love each other, the way that they love me, they peer into that and say, that's what I want. Because Jesus said it this way, I'm going to give you the greatest commandment, the most important commandment you'll ever have. To love each other as I have loved you. And to love the world like I have loved the world. You do that, it will change the world. Christian or disciple, my friends, we have to be disciples. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, it's uh, really easy to uh, condemn the world, to tell them how bad they are and how ugly they are, and <laughs> that's never accomplished anything. Oh, it has. It started wars and started all kinds of problems, but Father, you've called us to a different standard, and that standard is this, to love the people in this room the way that Jesus loved us. And then to love people outside this room, especially those who are not disciples, in such a way that they will see our lives, they will see our love, they will see our devotion, and they will say, tell me about Jesus. I want to know about Jesus. I want to know what he can do for me. Father, that's our call to discipleship, and I pray that that call would be on each of our hearts and our lives today. Now, Father, we have the absolute joy of watching five individuals follow you in baptism. And my prayer is that as we do that, each one of us in this room will reaffirm our baptismal vows. Each of us in this room, many of us at least, were, have already have been baptized. And Lord, may we take these moments to reaffirm and to recommit ourselves to you and to the vows we made at our baptism. And Father, I pray for these people as they're baptized. I pray, Father, that you would touch their hearts in a profound way, that they would know the joy of what it means to follow Christ and to say, yes, yes. Jesus, you asked me to do something, my answer is yes. And we pray that in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.